0: We're watching fashion trends, pep talks where we give advice, mental health moments, and games and guests. Listen to Giggly Squad on ACast or wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.
1: This is the Naked Genetics
0: Podcast, taking a look inside your genes.
1: realise it, but your health, immune system and even love life are governed by the particular set of so-called compatibility genes that you inherit. There are thousands of different variations in these genes, but why do we have such diversity and does it matter?
2: So no one has a better or worse set of genes, but across the whole human population it's the diversity that allows us to survive disease best of all.
1: Plus, we dig into the latest research on cancer genetics, how studying hundreds of tumour genomes might bring forward new breast cancer cures. This is the Naked Genetics Podcast for May 2016 with me, Dr. Kat Arney, brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. Compatibility is a mysterious thing. What makes some people get on like a house on fire, while others never seem to click? In biological terms, compatibility goes even deeper than that, affecting whether a particular person is a suitable match as an organ donor, influencing our immune response to different diseases, and even affecting our romantic and childbearing partners. To delve deeper into these molecular mysteries, Dan Davis, Professor of Immunology at the University of Manchester, recently published his book, The Compatibility Gene. And, as he explained to me, it all started with a curious scientist called Peter Medawar.
2: In the summer of 1940, he was uh, one day sitting uh, in his garden and a plane crashed a few doors uh, down the road from where he was sitting. Uh, And at the time, he was an expert in antibiotics, so he was called in to treat the uh, burnt airmen. At the time, you knew that you could uh, use antibiotics to prevent the wounds being infected. But when Peter Medwell paced around the War Wounds Hospital in Oxford, he realised that there was some problem that although you could stop the wounds being infected, you couldn't actually help the wounds really heal. And that was because for some reason, you couldn't take skin from one person and graft it onto the skin of someone else.
1: So you can't just patch someone up with someone else's skin.
2: Exactly. And that is quite mysterious. If you think about it, you know, what what, we, you know, surely the molecules and cells that we're made of, that our skin is made of, is pretty much the same. Yeah, so, your hand
1: looks like my hand. What's, what's the exactly, difference? Mine's so, just
2: smaller. Right, so why can't we just take skin from one person and stick it onto someone else? What is it that makes that not work? And actually, at the time that Peter Medawar uh, realised this was a major problem, uh, he people generally thought that there was some problem in the way the surgery was done, that you weren't, we weren't quite able to do the stitching and the sewing and moving skin around. And if the surgeons could perfect the technique, then it would probably work out. But of course, that turned out to be completely wrong.
1: What was the next stage in that discovery? What is it about one person's skin that means you can't just glue it onto someone else's?
2: Right. So what Peter Medoit did was uh, try and it was immerse himself in that problem. So actually, he moved to uh, Glasgow and there he worked with a surgeon, Tom Gibson. And Tom Gibson, the surgeon he was working with in Glasgow, happened to mention that he thought that when you transplant skin from one person to another person, and then did the same thing again, the skin was rejected much faster the second time round. Now, Peter Medawar seized on that anecdote because he realised that that's the hallmark of an immune reaction. So you know that when you get uh, flu, you'll be able to react with the exact same flu a bit better the second time round, and that's the hallmark of an immune system reaction. So he seized on that anecdote as... Perhaps there's something about uh, the immune system that causes skin to be rejected when it's moved from one person to the other. So then he moved back to uh, Oxford and he, did, he tested that idea in rabbits. He actually took um, uh, 25 different rabbits and moved skin from each rabbit to every other rabbit and then did it again and then showed that, yes, indeed, the skin was rejected faster a second time round. So 625 operations on rabbits wow. to prove that point. Yeah. So he's going to win a Nobel Prize for that, but at the time it's just hard work. <laughs>
1: yeah, I guess it did pay off in the end. So, so moving forward from that, we discovered that you can't take skin from one person and put it in someone else. You can't take skin from one rabbit and put it in someone else. Presumably that's the same reason why you can't just take some organs or some blood and just randomly put it in someone else too.
2: Right, so it comes down to the differences in the genes that each person uh, has. So, you know, we all have the same 23,000 or so genes, the human genome, but, and, not, you know, 99% of, of our genes are identical, but something like 1% of our genes vary from person to person. So, the key issue in understanding this is really what are the differences. Uh, in genes between people.
1: This kind of makes sense though, because you look at humans and we're all broadly built to the same plan. You know, we've got the head, two arms, two legs, most of the right organs and all that kind of stuff. But there are unique differences between us. So this kind of shouldn't have been that surprising.
2: Right. It's not that surprising that genes vary to some extent between each individual person. What's really surprising is what those genes are. So, you know, in... Like you just said, you know, we all have the same rough body plan. And if you thought about what genes might be different between me, you, and everybody else, we might think of genes that perhaps dictate our hair colour, eye colour, skin colour. So it turns out, though, that the genes that vary the most between each individual person... Have absolutely nothing to do with how we physically look. The genes that vary the most are they 're formally called the major histocompatibility complex genes. And in the book I wrote uh, about this whole topic, I called them the compatibility genes to you know just abbreviate that. And the crucial thing is that these genes work in our immune system.
1: And what are they doing in the immune system? So you would expect, you know, as humans, we're exposed to all sorts of threats and dangers and unpleasant things. Why do we have these fundamental differences between our immune systems and the, and the genes that are involved in them?
2: OK, so to understand why these genes are different between each gotta we've got to backtrack a bit and, and talk about how the immune system actually works. Uh, so as you know, genes encode for proteins and then the proteins go and do stuff in, in the body. Uh, now, these genes uh, make a sort of cup shaped protein. Uh, so I'm sort of holding up my hand here in a cup shape to show you. I'm but holding that
1: doesn't, a coffee cup. <laughs> that coffee doesn't cup work.
2: shaped protein. <laughs> doesn't work so well in a podcast. But anyway, there'll be uh, 100,000 copies of this particular protein uh, at the surface of nearly all your cells. And it's in a, in a sort of cup shape. And it's holding in the groove, in the in the, where like as you, you were holding the coffee cup. The coffee cup would be. A sample of uh, other proteins that that cell is currently making. So what happens is the genes that vary the most between each individual person make this protein molecule that presents up at the surface of the cell samples of all the other proteins that are currently being made inside that cell. Then your immune system has cells that look at those samples of protein. And if they see something that's never been in your body before, then they know there must be something inside that cell that is alien to your body, perhaps stuff being made by a virus or bacteria or some other kind of germ. And then the immune system will know there's something wrong with that cell and they'll either kill it or they'll summon other Immune cells to deal with it.
1: So it's kind of a bit like a molecular quality control. It's going, okay, does this look normal? Does this look normal? Does this look normal? And if something doesn't look normal, the immune system goes, oh right, let's sort that out.
2: Yeah, perfect. That's the great explanation. So the key issue then is why are those? Why are they different? Why do we all have slightly different versions of these genes that make these proteins that are presenting samples of what's inside our cells? So. Uh, it turns out that if you're infected with one type of virus, say the flu virus, say you get flu virus and I get the same flu and you might recover in four days and I might get better in five days, one of the reasons for that would be that we have different versions of these genes. So that would mean that uh, for a given type of virus, your, the version of the gene that you have might be better at presenting a sample of something being made by that virus. Uh, and it turns out that Although my gene might be a little bit worse at dealing with that particular flu, it might well be better at another type of flu. So the overall message is that we have to have this diversity so that we are, uh, as a species, uh, as well as as individuals, strong at fighting all the possible different kinds of viruses that could infect humans.
1: I was going to say, it doesn't, on the surface of it, sound like it makes evolutionary sense for, say, you and I to be different in our response to the infections that we're both exposed to. But as a species then, so we have to think about it in evolutionary terms in a broader way, that it's about how diverse our species' immune system is rather than just my own.
2: Yes, it's quite complicated because actually it works at the level of the individual as well as the species because you also have more than one copy of this gene in you. So you have a diversity in you as well. Uh, so for example we're we're talking here about for sort of experts we're talking about the class one versions of these genes and you have three copies from your mum and three copies from your dad so you actually have six different versions of that gene so you have a diversity in of these proteins and i do and we have different ones and we you know and the next generation then shares in a mixture of all the differences passed on from one to the other.
1: Give me an idea of this kind of diversity in these these compatibility genes, say, between people in the UK, people around the world. What sort of numbers of variations are we talking about?
2: Enormous variations. So as I said, you have three copies of these genes, uh, and uh, they're actually called A, B and C. And roughly across humans, there are roughly a thousand different A genes, a thousand different versions of the B gene, a thousand different versions of the C gene you could have, and you'll inherit one of those from your mom, one of those from your dad, and they could be, uh, in principle, any one of those thousands. So it's the combinations of six that you would have are uh, you know, huge, enormously diverse. So out of about 18 million people that are in one of the databases that are held by the, the charity Anthony Nolan that does uh, uses this information for matching people for bone marrow transplant. Out of the 18 million people that I have, roughly about a million of them are absolutely and completely unique. Uh, and then other numbers within that would share sets of their genes with other people. So just these three genes uh, almost entirely define your uniqueness.
1: This, to me, makes it sound like how does any kind of transplant work at all? So how well do you have to match a transplant for someone based on these genes to make sure that transplants don't get rejected?
2: Obviously, you try and match as many as you can. And, and it's true that some genes have more importance than others. And it depends actually on the on the exact type of transplant you're doing. So for bone marrow transplant, you would match certain genes, but for other types of transplant, you would, it's less important to match, say, the C version of the, of the gene and more important to match the B version of the gene. And, and so there's some nuance to all of that. Uh, so by and large, it's important to try and match these genes as best you can.
1: We've talked about the role of these genes in transplantation and compatibility with organs and tissues. Are there any other aspects of our lives and our health that these genes influence?
2: There are several areas where these genes crop up. that have nothing to do with the immunology. And it's a more con- there are, these areas of science are much more controversial. For example, there is a famous experiment uh, done where women were uh, asked to rank the smell of T-shirts that had been worn by men for a couple of days. So men were asked to wear T-shirts uh, and plain cotton white t-shirts they were told to uh, refrain from sex not enter into a smelly room and then these t-shirts were put into cardboard boxes with little triangles cut out women would smell these t-shirts and then they would rank how sexy they thought the t-shirts smelt and then the results were compared to the version of these compatibility genes that the men and women had and it turned out the that the women preferred the smell of t-shirts worn by men who had different versions of these compatibility jeans.
1: Now why would that be? I mean for a start let's forget how horrible that sounds. Sniffle these disgusting <laughs> t-shirts ladies, enjoy. Um, so why would we want someone that's different? Surely it should all be about compatibility and finding someone who's the same as us.
2: So uh, the the idea behind that would be that Um, you seek a sexual partner that has different versions of these genes to yourself so that it would maximize the diversity we have in these genes in our children that then keeps the human species very diverse in these genes which allows us to be strong at fighting all kinds of infections but it's an idea more than a proven fact and um, there are many uh, difficulties with that kind of experiment so firstly smell is very very difficult to study so You know, um, you know, you're recording this interview digitally. It sounds can be digitized very easily. TV is obviously using a digital version of 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 a picture, but smell cannot be digitized or analyzed in any way. You know, how do you describe the smell of vanilla? It's just a very hard thing to study. Secondly, uh, if the women rank the smell of t shirts say five out of ten compared to four out of ten, what would that mean? Obviously, we had you know, any human interaction is incredibly complex and the, the extent to which uh, a change in smell can impact someone's behaviour is highly controversial and extremely difficult to study.
1: Yeah, if I had to choose between, do you want to sleep with a 5 out of 10 guy or a 4 out of 10 guy, my answer is, <laughs> neither can I have the 10 out of 10 guy, please.
2: <laughs> yeah, very good. So, you know, it's very hard to pin that down to an impact on human behaviour. But there is some good evidence in, in animals. So, for example, mice... Uh, would run down a Y-shaped track, and they can choose to mate with either one of the other two mice. And they do prefer to mate with another mouse that has different versions of these genes. Uh, so, they, so there is some fundamental biology in that because it's true even in animals. But uh, mice do that by smelling each other' urine. So, you know, that's probably a skill lost enough. So, uh, uh, um... that's a
1: whole section of Tinder you, <laughs> d- you don't want
2: to go down there. <laughs> so, it's hard also to you know build up a picture from experiments done in mice to relate that to anything that we might do so there's probably some interesting fundamental biology in that story uh uh, but it still is quite a controversial subject so where the where the evidence is much uh stronger on a stronger footing perhaps is in the likely uh chance of problems that can happen in pregnancy Uh, and so Um, uh, Ashley Moffat and Francesco Colucci in in Cambridge University have done some research, for example, that show that the likely that you have problems in pregnancy such as uh, preeclampsia or fetal growth restriction does correlate with the uh, mum and the dad having particular versions of uh, combinations of immune system genes and so although our, our deep understanding of that is to be honest quite fuzzy it fits the general theme that that these genes can be important not just in the immune system but also in reproduction as a way of making sure that these genes stay exceptionally diverse uh, amongst humankind.
1: What do we know about compatibility between different species? You know, For example, could we take the, the liver of a pig and put it into a human? There's a desperate shortage of transplant organs for humans. Why does or doesn't that work?
2: The, the, the difficulty there is that you would have an immune reaction against these molecules that have never been in your body before. But of course, there are ways in which the body becomes tolerant to things that have never been in the body before. You know, in the food that you eat is an obvious example.
1: With the advent of these precision genome editing tools that we now have, these things like CRISPR, does that bring us the capacity to kind of switch up people's compatibility genes and even make animal organs suitable for transplant? Is that the kind of future? What would happen if you just took out someone's... MHC completely.
2: If you say you know made an organ a blank so it had no compatibility genes to cause a reaction on the face of it then the immune system wouldn't have anything to look at it wouldn't have these these this protein reporting samples of what's being made inside cells and actually viruses some viruses do that actually one of the things I discovered or helped discover early on in my career was that HIV uh, removes the compatibility gene protein from the surface of, of cells Uh, But actually you have another arm of your immune system uh, and you have white blood cells called natural killer cells that actually check that that process of, of immune surveillance is working properly. And if they notice cells that lack those compatibility gene proteins, then they also know something is wrong about that cell, and then they proceed to kill the cell or deal with it in some way. So you have another arm of your immune system that is looking for a loss of these proteins. It's a concept called missing self uh, that came from Klaus Cherry. Uh, he first thought of the idea when he was a PhD student in the mid 1980s in Stockholm. Uh, and uh, it's a wonderful idea, and it turns out uh, uh, to be entirely true that you have this other arm of the immune system. Uh, looking for a loss of healthy proteins as a sign of disease, just like you have the uh, a, a large part of the immune system looking for things that that are alien to the body of, as a sign of disease.
1: What do you see coming in the next five to ten years of the future? If it, that's not too hard to look that far ahead.
2: So I think that there, in terms of specifically around these genes, I think there will there are there are already emerging correlations between the versions of these genes that you have and the types of drugs that are going to work best in you. And I think there is some potential for that to become uh, more of a a, a mainstream endeavor. Now, my own research is actually in using uh, what are called super resolution microscopes, which are microscopes that won the Nobel Prize last year. And we uh, visualize exactly where all these uh, proteins go to, to make an immune reaction happen. So You know, the frontier in a way, or at least this frontier that I'm uh, involved with, is that although we understand that these genes make a protein and that they signal to the immune system whether or not there's a problem, we don't understand very easily uh, how all the different proteins interact together for this complex decision to be made. So another way of thinking about that is, okay, we understand that this protein might signal to an immune cell that there's a problem. but when the immune cell touches another cell it actually takes about two to five minutes to make the decision as to whether that other cell is healthy or diseased. And why is that? Right. So what is it doing when it's having that think? And so the way that we tackle that is by really imaging uh, how all the different proteins move around and interact with each other and then the cell makes a a final decision about whether the other cell uh, is diseased or healthy and it should be killed or spared.
1: It sounds like there's lots of exciting research to come out of that in the future. But what generally would be the take-home message you want people to understand about these compatibility genes?
2: These are important stories for the medical outcome, the number of lives saved through transplantation. But actually, the reason why I wanted to write this story and uh, and write a book about it is not solely about the medical output. It's also about the fact that this is this story is the ultimate celebration of human diversity. So, you know, the greatest tragedies throughout history, from the Holocaust to the slave trade, have all been about misunderstanding the differences between people. And it turns out that the greatest genetic difference between people have nothing to do with how we look like, but they are to do with how our immune system works. And it turns out that the those differences between people that determine how system works, are essential for how we survive uh, disease. And here's the most important take-home message of this story, that there's no hierarchy in this system. So it's not that any one person has better or worse genes. It's the diversity in our genes that are essential for how we survive disease. And there are very clear, explicit examples of that. So for example, Uh, for HIV, which uh, gives people AIDS, obviously the best way to avoid AIDS is not catch HIV, but if you did catch HIV, then a certain version of these genes would um, make it a longer period of time on average before you were likely to develop full-blown AIDS. So that version of the genes would be somewhat beneficial or could be beneficial if you were infected with HIV but that very same version of this gene that helps you with HIV is also a risk factor for giving you certain kinds of autoimmune disease so no one has a better or worse set of genes but across the whole human population it's the diversity that allows us to survive disease best of all.
1: Everyone's a little bit mutant.
2: (laughs) Everyone is a little bit mutant.
1: Dan Davis from the University of Manchester and his book The Compatibility Gene is out now. What's more, he and I will be talking about my new genetics book, Herding Hemingway's Cats, at an event on the 30th of May at 1pm on the Good Energy stage at the Hay Literary Festival. I've got loads of speaking events coming up around the UK talking about the book, so if you want to keep up to date, just find me on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash or follow me on Twitter. I'm at harpistcat. It's been hailed as a milestone in cancer genetics. Researchers at the Wellcome Trust Sanger Institute in Cambridge have sequenced and analysed the entire genomes of more than 500 breast tumours, revealing exciting new clues about the origins of the disease and how to treat it more effectively. I caught up with Dr Emma Smith, Science Information Manager at Cancer Research UK, to find out what they discovered in there.
3: They found entirely new genetic faults that have never been found before. They also looked at interesting patterns of genetic mutations. I think this is something that's really interesting. Uh, For certain cancers, like lung cancer, it's often linked to tobacco smoke and smoking. We know in that case particularly what's causing the DNA damage. It's chemicals in the smoke. But for breast cancer, nobody's really understood to date what's causing the genetic mutations to crop up. Why would they suddenly appear in the cells? And that's what these um, results produce some really intriguing clues into the underlying
1: biological processes that could be going wrong to drive the disease in the first place. So, in terms of looking at these cancer genomes, all the sum total of DNA in these tumours, it's like pouring through hundreds of recipe books looking for every single typo in every word in every recipe. How messed up were these cancers, genetically speaking? And they did find that the mistakes were concentrated in certain
3: genes, but they also showed that actually every person's cancer was really quite individual and unique to them. So every person's cancer is a unique genetic tale, um, documenting their build-up of genetic mistakes over time, and it kind of really emphasises the importance of moving towards personalised or tailored medicine, moving away from this whole idea of, you know, one cap fits all treatment, that everyone with breast cancer should be lumped together and
1: given the same kind of treatment, because everybody's cancer is really very individual to them. What exactly does that mean? How do you take this information that you found in the genetics of someone's tumour, their genetic signature of their cancer, and go... OK, you need this and that treatment. How does that actually work?
3: There are lots of drugs out there that have been developed that specifically target faulty molecules. But the, the trouble is, who do we give these these treatments to? We know certain groups of people that respond to them, but we don't really understand who's actually going to benefit from who's not. And also in the past, cancer treatment has been very much guided by what kind of cancer you have. If you have breast cancer, you're given this treatment versus another type of treatment for lung cancer. But actually... Doctors are moving away from that now and viewing cancers as being determined more by their genetic faults and actually treatments that in the past have worked for types of lung cancer, could work for types of breast cancer, could work for types of brain tumour because it's all about the shared genetic mistakes that are fueling that cancer and if we can get treatments that particularly target them, A, they might be more effective and B, they also might be kinder and spare healthy tissue because they specifically home in on cancer
1: cells. In terms of the types of damage, were there specific, I've heard them described as scars in the genome, specific patterns of damage, and do we know what might have been causing some of them in these breast cancers? It's a really interesting question. Some of them they do know,
3: for example, women with faults in a gene called BRCA1 or BRCA2, they already know that there are defects in the molecules that fix DNA, and they leave these very characteristic scars on the DNA. And they saw these, and they saw that actually BRCA1 and BRCA2 had very different footprints, which is really interesting. They didn't know that before. Another pattern or mutational signature, if you want, that they found was caused by a molecule called Apobex, I I love Apobex. They're really interesting. They were first discovered through HIV research and research into the immune system. They're actually very important for a normal, healthy, functioning immune system. But if they go haywire, like they can do in cancer, suddenly they're introducing mutations into the DNA left, right and centre. If the mutation happens in a key gene that's when you can get cancer developing. So some really interesting patterns or mutational signatures. They also characterise some, they still don't know what's causing them. So this is a really open, whole new field of biology that I think is going to be
1: really exciting in the next few years. This is a huge amount of data, a huge amount of information to scour through, but it's still one type of cancer. So are there other researchers who are looking at other types of cancer as well? Is this the way that cancer research is going now?
3: Absolutely. The introduction of personalised medicine, of sequencing genomes, looking for particular patterns and mistakes in genes, and then trying to tailor treatments accordingly is taking off in a big way. Different types of cancer. For lung cancer, we've got the big stratified medicine programme now um, being rolled out in the NHS to try and match treatments better to lung cancer patients. It will happen across different cancer types as well. But I think what's really exciting is that These results from breast cancer might well be applicable to other types of cancer as well. The same underlying biological processes might be driving other types of cancer that we don't know about yet. So using this kind of research to fuel the discovery of new treatments or to better tailor treatments might well be applicable across the board.
1: That was Emma Smith from Cancer Research UK. And finally, it's time for our Gene of the Month, and this time it's Alhambra. First found in fruit flies, Alhambra controls the activity of many different genes by influencing the organisation of the ball-shaped proteins that package up DNA, known as chromatin. So far, scientists have found that it's involved in several processes in development, especially the different larval stages the fly embryo goes through and the molting in between them. It also seems to play a role in some interesting behaviours, including controlling the activity of olfactory receptor genes, which make molecules in the fly's nose that allow it to smell and detect flies of the opposite sex, and the courtship song created when male flies rub their wings together, as well as other male sexy times behaviours. Researchers have recently discovered that Alhambra works together with another well-known fruit fly gene called fruitless, which we've met before. Male fruit flies with faulty fruitless have problems getting down to mating with female flies. In fact, they don't seem very interested in the ladies at all. And female flies with faulty fruitless tend to behave more like males. So maybe is involved in some of that as well. That's all for now. Next month I'll be back with all the latest genetics news. If you've got any questions or feedback, just email me at genetics at you can also get in touch through the main Naked Scientist Facebook page or tweet at Naked Genetics. Every episode of the Naked Genetics podcast is on iTunes and online at nakedscientist.com genetics. The Naked Genetics podcast is brought to you in association with the Genetics Society online at genetics.org.uk. I'll see you next time for another peek inside your genes.